Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for May 13th, 2020. I'm very pleased uh, to be bringing you guys another interview today. Uh, it is not, it's sort of coronavirus related, but what it is really uh, is the final culmination of a several month long effort uh, to, on my part, that has not gone very well, but but luckily has worked out, uh, worked out in the end, uh, to bring somebody on the program to talk about, talk to us about Bolivia. Uh, this effort has been going on, as you might imagine, all the way going all the way back to November, uh, when then President Evo Morales was forced from office in a uh, what certainly looked like a military coup, uh, having you know just one re-election in a uh, process that was disputed uh, by the opposition. Uh, Morales was forced out of power and forced to go into exile. Uh, he was replaced by what can, I think, rightly be called a, a junta government, a, a very right-wing uh, rump government under a uh, here theretofore uh, little-known, as far as I know, uh, Bolivian politician named Janine Añez. Uh, the Añez government, uh, instead of, as you might expect or hope in a situation like that, and as it really promised, as Añez herself promised when she took power, uh, instead of simply organizing a new election and getting a more legitimate government in place, uh, it has instead gone into a very long and uh, very, uh, I think, planned or at least um, enthusiastic effort to reverse a lot of the policies of the Morales era. Uh, that has culminated most recently with uh, Añez's government's outright refusal now to hold a new election. There was an election scheduled for May 2nd. Of course, we've already blown through that. Uh, Añez uh, and her government said there's no way we can possibly hold an election during the coronavirus. That would be crazy. So let's just postponed it until, you know, some other time, indefinitely. Uh, the Bolivian Congress, which is still under the control of Morales's movement towards socialism party, which is known by its Spanish acronym MAS or MAS, uh, voted to force Añez's government to hold an election, which I think is supposed to happen. Uh, we'll be talking about this in a, in a bit, but I think it's supposed to happen sometime late this summer. Uh, or, you know, no later than that. Uh, Añez's government is now fully masked off, rejecting even that deadline uh, and just outright refusing to hold an election. So uh, it, it's very interesting time. Uh, it has been a dismal time, I think, for a lot of people in Bolivia. Uh, and as I say, I've been trying to get somebody to come on the program and talk to us about this. I'm very lucky uh, that we have finally, uh, finally kind of stumbled on somebody uh, very qualified to talk about this. Uh, and I'm going to be joined via Skype in a few moments here by Thomas Seafield, Jr., Thomas is Associate Professor of Global Security and Intelligence Studies at the Embry-Riddle College of Security and Intelligence. Uh, he's the author of uh, a book called From Development to Dictatorship, uh, Bolivia and the Alliance for Progress in the Kennedy Era, which was published in 2014. 
Uh, he has been published in journals like Diplomatic History and the Journal of Latin American Studies. Uh, just this month, actually, uh, he co-edited uh, a new book uh, that's just out called Latin America and the Global Cold War. Uh, so he is uh, a scholar with a, a wealth of uh, knowledge and experience about Latin America and specifically about Bolivia. Uh, and I think he's got uh, a, a, a very useful take on what's been happening there and one that you guys will appreciate. Uh, so again, I'm very glad that, that this has all ended up. Uh, my, my extended failure to find somebody uh, to talk about Bolivia has in fact ended up in a very good place because I think Thomas... Uh, you know, Thomas really knows what he's talking about, and I think you'll hear in the uh, the interview we're about to do, he really uh, really lays it out there. Uh, so, with all that said, uh, I am going to uh, end this introduction and get the Skype fired up, uh, and we'll get started with the interview. Thomas, thank you so much for coming on to to talk to us about what is happening in Bolivia and what's been happening in Bolivia for a few months now. Thanks, Derek. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so I, I, I said this to Thomas already as we were chatting before the interview, but uh, I, I'm going to make you pay uh, a little bit here for the fact that I haven't been able to find or get a guest on uh, to talk about Bolivia uh, until now, despite some uh, trying, you know, to, to around the time of the, the uh, ouster of Evo Morales and, and that sort of uh, controversy. Um, and then, you know, we I, things got sidetracked with the, the pandemic. So I, I, my, my uh, point here is we're going to start uh, all the way back in October with the election uh, to lay the context for this. The, the rest of the interview will talk about what the government is doing in Bolivia right now uh, with its response to the coronavirus and uh, sort of uh, ways that it's creatively using the, the pandemic to, to suppress dissent uh, and plans for an election. Uh, but we're going to start with uh, the event that kicked all of this off, which is the general election uh, last October, uh, in which uh, Evo Morales, who was the incumbent president, uh, was running again for a fourth term. Uh, he won, by, according to the official count, uh, just kind of barely crossed over the, the line to avoid a runoff. Uh, but there were questions about uh, the counting. It had been paused briefly. There was some technical issues. Uh, why don't you start us here with, with what actually happened uh, in the election, and especially, you know, get into the role that uh, the Organization of American States played, and this sort of, uh, you know, controversy over uh, whether the, the the vote count was legitimate. Yes, yeah. Thanks for the thanks for the question. Um, yeah, the the debates over Bolivia's 2019 election are going to continue for a very long time, and uh, in in fact, it's just getting more interesting. They're sort of you know, ongoing debates um, about the question of, you know, possible sort of accused or alleged electoral fraud, uh, which, again, will continue for a long, long time. But um, in Bolivia itself, most of the sort of day to day uh, events today are, are have sort of moved on. But uh, uh, if you go on Twitter, or you sort of look at some of the think tank debates about the electoral fraud, it's a pretty hot uh, debate. I would say that the main controversy surrounds 
a uh, as you mentioned the pause in Bolivia's quick count. Uh, it, it's called the sort of preliminary count that uh, Bolivia has, and many other countries have as well. It's sort of a, an automatic electronic count that happens automatically the night of the election. And the OAS, the Organization of American States, had actually recommended this quick count system um, in a number of countries as a way to sort of uh, bolster confidence. Uh, if you think about the Iowa app, it was very similar to that in that uh, it was a sort of technology that was supposed to increase confidence in the voting process because it gives immediate results. Um, it's not official. The official results are ha uh, sort of hand counted and, and delivered by person, you know, in, in person. So you really have two counts in Bolivia and many other countries that are um, sort of following OAS guidelines, the preliminary count and the uh, official count. But also like Iowa, the uh, technology um, seems to have become very screwed up and um, there's a lot of reasons for that, and uh, there's a lot of speculation about that as well, sort of ongoing conspiracy theories uh, on all sides. But um, for for some reason, and there's some speculation about why the, the quick count was was paused uh, due to some questions about it the evening of the election. Um, it was resumed the next day. Uh, when it was paused, uh, Evo Morales was up by about seven percent, I believe. And when it was when it resumed, um, the trend. Uh, you know, the mass party, his mass party is very strong in the countryside. And so those are the late reporting um, ballots, both in the um, precincts, both in the quick count and the official count. And so as his, as his um, overall lead was increasing, uh, you know, at that time, once they released the additional um, quick count votes the next morning, uh, Evan Morales's mass party had suddenly sort of you know, become uh, the victor, the outright victor in the first round. Uh, it makes sense uh, according to a lot of the trend lines, and it makes sense according to the polls. But the um, pause, uh, you know, this, the seeds of doubt had, had essentially been sown. And because the opposition had um, been quite actually upset about Ever Morales even running again, they seized on any sort of irregularity as evidence of fraud and the Organization of American States very much fueled that narrative uh, in the days after the election. So as you pointed out, Evan Morales' party, um, you know, won a decisive victory, sort of by all accounts, um, on, on, on October 20th. The question was whether the uh, mass party had won uh, by 10 percent over its closest competitor. Uh, and it was pretty close. Uh, mass won 47 percent to um, the leading competitor, Carlos Mesa, former president, Carlos Mesa, 36.5%. So it was, it was a pretty close uh, first round victory. Um, but the protests that were inspired by Carlos Mesa's rejection of the elections um, began to unravel in the weeks and sort of the days after the election, uh, culminating in a, in a police mutiny, um, sort of a, 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 a semi-coup, uh, which, of course, then begs the question at that moment, what, what's the military going to do? And the military abandoned Evo Morales as well, uh, asked for him to leave the country on uh, November 10th. He did do that at that point. Um, many in the country had sort of asked for uh, redo of the elections, including the Trade Union Federation, just to bring peace. Evo Morales agreed to that um, right before the military asked him to leave. Uh, we can go on into the sort of post-coup um, uh, situation, but it got increasingly dangerous and, and, and actually uh, violent after that. 
let's yeah, I want to get into kind of how things have played out under the 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 coup government basically. Um but I wanted to to go a little deeper into this notion that that there was something fraudulent about the election because this was something, you know, you mentioned it I I was in my question um that that the OAS kind of jumped on immediately without any uh real time to study the results or anything they just kind of immediately leapt to the conclusion that something fraudulent was going on in the in the count and as you noted uh this quick count technology i mean we have firsthand experience now in the u.s it's not great um and it's not necessarily a reliable indicator on top of that there was a you know research paper done by the uh, center for economic policy research that that found that uh the way that the count proceeded was pretty much the way you would expect it to have proceeded. Morales's strength was in rural areas, which, uh, you know, whose votes come in later than in the, the cities. Uh, and so you would expect his uh, margin of victory or his, you know, vote total to increase, his percentage uh, of the vote total to increase uh, as the count goes on and as these kind of more distant areas uh come in i wonder you know the the oas is a uh is an interesting case i did an episode on them you know uh, a couple of few months ago uh and sort of the the increasingly uh, or i don't know if it's increasingly but but the sort of uh you know right wing um u.s managed i think to some extent um overtone of this organization and the the hostility that that kind of uh, is shown toward leftist governments, and I wonder uh, if you could could dig a little more into that and sort of the the research that's been done since that's kind of cast some doubt on their uh, initial claim that this is this was a, a fraudulent vote. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Derek. Yeah, I mean, you, you're exactly right to cite the um, think the the think tank, the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington. They have done just tremendous uh, research on on you know using all of the data available to them from the Bolivian electoral authorities, the um, you know the OAS really hasn't released their methods. So you know the 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 the, the Center for Economic and Policy Research really only uh, sustained um, effort to debunk the OAS's assertions. Uh, really, you know, sort of is left to argue with. Uh, with uh, sort of with, with smoke and mirrors, because the OAS uh, refuses to sort of release the data that they use, uh, refuses to release their methodology. So um, you know, the OAS is like there was fraud, and and here's some sort of sample irregularities, which if they happened everywhere, um, would have you know shifted the election by. Uh, 1.6% and, and Evo Morales would have won by, you know, 0.99%. I mean, uh, it, it's a very frustrating, I think it's a very frustrating uh, debate to have. I, I've, I've entered into this debate before sort of reading um, the OAS report and um, reading, you know, I've, I've even got a couple of research uh, students um, at my university just looking into all of the audits. There's, you know, sort of many audits that were done uh, of the quick count by um, the Bolivian um, the Bolivian um, IT company that ran the quick count. There's 
there was an audit run by um, uh, written by the OAS sort of approved auditor who then became very much sort of part of the sort of coup government's narrative about um, about what happened during the quick count, you know, sort of very sort of um, a bit of a conflict of interest, I think, there. And then and then the OAS itself has its audit of the election or its uh, its its observation report. And it's a very frustrating debate to have because. Um, yes, there were irregularities, as there are with with any election. The scale of irregularities don't seem to be that large, and the OAS is just sort of you know say, well, you know, um, there was fraud, and the it's really what, what the OAS says today is much sort of less consequential. Um, I mean, it 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 holds maybe a lot of importance for people in terms of the dip- diplomatic community, but um, you know, the OAS's actions between October twentieth. And November 10th are uh, really were really the the crucial moment where um, the OA you know the OAS played a major role in the destruction of Bolivia's democracy essentially because of their um, incredibly aggressive language um, without providing really any evidence just sort of saying that there's hard to explain rapid inexplicable changes in the vote totals which I mean even at the time. Um, you know, everyone sort of um, was plan- was was watching the vote totals on tw- on sort of Twitter, watching the both the quick count and the official count, and watching the mass party continue to gain in the last 15% of precincts reporting. And you know, everyone knew that that was the trend. The question was, you know, how up, you know, how high would that trend toward the mass party break in the last 15%? So to say that it was an inexplicable. Uh, uh, a shift is is quite uh, discon- was quite disconcerting, and it really fueled the opposition's narrative. Um, you know, to the extent to which the OAS was incompetent or sort of in on it, I think that uh, historians will be looking at that in the future. Um, the the OAS, uh, your, your, to your question about the OAS's sort of political line, you know, I think the OAS is is it's really only as good as its member states. And uh, if, if as a historian of, of of U.S. Latin American relations, the OAS has a very um, sort of very dark history of um, supporting the worst uh, sort of, of of U.S. foreign policy in Latin America. I mean, the, the OAS gave legal sanction to the Guatemalan coup, the CIA's uh, coup in Guatemala, PB success that overthrew the democratically elected government of Huckabar Benz. The OAS, you know, was the driving force of isolating Cuba after the 1959 Cuban Revolution. And really, the OAS was very much in the sort of, you know, I would say very much controlled, not just by the U.S., but I mean, by the U.S. and its allies, many dictatorships that controlled Latin America in the 30s, 40s and 50s, um, you know, were part and parcel of the creation of the OAS in the late 1940s as an anti, really as a sort of self-consciously anti-communist organization. So I think that we remember the OAS as it existed, maybe from the 1970s through the 1990s, which was sort of a semi- um, sort of a more of a multilateral organization. Uh, it got its, uh, it, it sort of got a backbone in the 1970s and 80s, both during the sort of third worldist political insurgency of the 70s, the sort of Latin American nationalism. Um, and then also in the 1980s period of democratization, human rights, the OAS really played a I think, quite positive role in promoting human rights and democratization. But um, what we see, I think, since 2016, since the election of Donald Trump, and then subsequently the election of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, is very much the sort of, uh, the OAS has returned to its McCarthyist days, its interventionist days, and uh, really um, uh, the shift in the current Secretary General from basically a sort of very much an Obama line 
uh, Secretary General, the, his name is Luis uh, Almargo, Almagro, sorry. Um, he, he really shifted from the Obama line, which was kind of tolerance for, for, for you know, meeting with Chavez, uh, tolerance for Cuba, trade with Cuba, to an extreme sort of uh, right-wing, uh, anti-Cuba, anti-Venezuela, uh, and, and, uh, and actually eventually anti-Bolivia line as well. Uh, and it looks like the OAS has, has very much become a sort of uh, part of Washington's strategy to reassert its hegemony in the hemisphere, particularly as it withdraws from the rest of the world. If that's really happening, right? That's but that's I think part of the Trump administration calculus that you know to sort of consolidate uh, the Western Hemisphere much in the same way that Nixon did back in the 19, early 1970s. I want to talk about um, the the post coup government, government and, and you know what it has gotten uh, involved in since ousting Morales. Uh, but before we we get into its actions, I'd like to ask you about uh, sort of. Who are the people who are mainly involved in um, this government, not just inside of it, uh, but sort of in the broader movement that was responsible for the protests and for sort of, uh, uh, you know, leveraging Morales out of office? Um, who are the sort of major players? And, and we could even look at this as sort of a, uh, you know, we're going to get into the possible... Uh, upcoming election later in the interview, but but some of the main kind of people who are running, um, Carlos Mesa's running again, former president. Uh, there's this uh, Luis Fernando Camacho character, is very hard right religious uh, guy who very dramatically you know took a Bible with him, uh, you know, in his protest against Morales and declared that uh, you know. Christianity is back and indigenous religion is out of the uh, the government forever, you know, very kind of uh, uh, dramatic scene. Uh, there's, of course, Janine Añez, who uh, kind of assumed control of the Bolivian Senate in the midst of Morales' ouster on November 10th. And, and in all of that chaos, uh, wound up as president, interim president of the country. Uh she initially suggested that she wasn't going to run for uh, re-election. Now she's, uh, you know, done a 180 on that and she is going to run. Um, and the other player who's not running for president is that I want to talk about is the um, is the current kind of interim interior minister, Arturo Murillo, who has been very kind of active uh, in, I think, some of the things we're going to be talking about, suppressing the uh, the MAS and its supporters and, you know, even making these very uh, kind of uh, extreme statements about hunting Evo Morales down and arresting him. And, uh, you know, it's been at the forefront of kind of the suppression of resistance to this government. So uh, if you could take us through some of these major players uh, and then, you know, I'd like to get into what what are the what's the agenda here? Uh, and I guess that kind of gets into some of the actions that the government has taken uh, since replacing Morales. But I, maybe we should start with sort of uh, who are these people and, and, you know, a little bit about their backgrounds and their their goals. Yeah, you, you actually um, listed these individuals very, you know, in a very helpful way, sort of. Um, as dr dramatis persona, sort of as they enter <laughs> drama, um, and, and you know, no one really knew who you know, these a lot of these people were until they appeared. Um, uh, even long time, um, sort of 
political analysts, uh, even, you know, within Bolivia, sort of, you know, even someone of the profile of like uh, of Luis Fernando Camacho is like really kind of almost came out of out of nowhere. This is really sort of um, a new generation. He represents kind of a new generation of sort of Santa Cruz rebels. But first, let's start with Mesa because you you actually first mentioned him, and um, you know, all eyes. In the lead up to this, the October elections, um, all eyes were on the one sort of uh, unified, if you want to call it that, uh, opposition uh, candidate, Carlos Mesa. Carlos Mesa is sort of a, um, you know, if, if Evo Morales is sort of the, um, you know, the 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 the, fa- the founder of a new Bolivia, uh, Carlos Mesa sort of had this like um, this sort of uh, elder statesman vibe to him. Still, he had been president for a short period of time uh, in 2003 after the resignation of Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada, the really the, 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 the last elected president before Evo Morales. Um, Carlos Mesa was a historian, uh, an, an admirer of the, the, the revolutionary nationalist movement, which was um, a sort of, um, well, it's a nationalist party that was formed in the 1940s, uh, sort of anti-capitalist uh, somewhat sort of middle-class bourgeois sort of bourgeois nationalist party a bit a bit right-wing in the 40s but then later on sort of developmentalist party worked closely with the united states as sort of the alternative to communism just like the united states supported the bath party and you know in iraq in the 60s they supported uh, carlos mesa's favorite party in the 1960s a lot of that wasn't known i mean i i got a lot of cia documents to sort of show and, and interviews to sort of show that the United States was sort of behind these individuals, but they are the liberals. Carlos Mesa represented the sort of um, secular liberals. Uh, it really, it really was. I think. I mean, it's hard to know until we get the documents, sort of declassified documents uh, from the U.S. I work with a lot of declassified documents when I studied the '60s and '70s, but I suspect that Carlos Mesa was probably the favorite of you know career diplomats in the United States, uh, you know, sort of liberal uh, internationalist. Um, you know, he he he. Uh, you know, he, he was he was a, a very strong sort of um, he's, he's a secular voice within Bolivia. Um, you know, he's got a lot of respect. They, the, the Mesa family publishes a lot of books and they sort of a lot of school children grow up reading the Mesa um, books like the presidents of Bolivia or whatever. So he's a well-respected elder statesman. Um, he managed to uh, unite uh, most uh, many of the opposition groups. And for the first time, Eva Morales faced an opposition that was uh, fairly well united. And that meant that the liberals and some of the moderate conservatives, moderate Catholic, you know, sort of conservatives, um, so, some, some, some on the left who were sort of anti-mass decided not to run another candidate. And so they really joined in with Carlos Mesa. There was a few, there were a few other candidates which we can get into, but they have sort of, a lot of them have disappeared. You know, um, there was one evangelical pastor, uh, Korean-born, who won actually almost 9% in the election. A lot of rural people actually went over to the evangelical ticket, and that, that may explain some of Mass's decline from the in, in the strong 50 percentile range down to the upper 40s, which is still one of the highest percentages of Bolivian presidents ever received, but uh, I digress. So um, Carlos Mesa united a lot of the factions and managed to get 36.5%. Um, he... He seemed to want to bring down um, Evo, Evo Morales after you know, after the election. Any any evidence of, of any um, sort of electoral problems, uh, I think Carlos Mesa was going to seize upon. He very much led 
the and inspired the opposition protests between October 20th and um, and November 10th. Um, his protests, the sort of the ones that he inspired and led, were very much in the first week or so after the election. Um, a lot of middle class people. Um, you know, sort of very much a sort of, um, you know, he led sort of capital strikes where middle class neighborhoods and wealthier people would sort of shut their doors and say, you know, electoral fraud. They were very much sort of anti-electoral fraud protests, which you can you can't really sustain for a long time because he didn't really have necessarily a positive message that resonated with lots of Bolivians. Um, you know, they voted for him essentially as an anti-Evo vote. So increasingly, as the as the crisis um, uh, went on and on, and actually many people, including myself, we thought that the mass party would survive. It had survived worse, uh, worse protests than this. I mean, it really wasn't nearly what what the mass party had survived uh, during the sort of uh, Tipney's um, uh, environmental protests uh, a couple of years earlier. Um, but then things took a turn to the hard right, and that's when Fernando Luis Fernando Camacho appeared. And it almost seemed like a farce, right? It was almost like, uh, you know, basically uh, this guy who actually heads up, he's a young guy. He'd recently taken over the uh, Santa Cruz Civic Committee, which is sort of like a, a mix between, I mean, some, some call it like a neo-fascist organization. I think it's more like a, I mean, you know, sort of like a glorified rotary club. It's sort of a, a Santa Cruz, um, <laughs> you know, business, businessmen's committee that, that they sort of have a really nice luncheon area. And I mean, to the extent that there are, I mean, there are fascist sort of ideas within the Santa Cruz business community and that is reflected, but other, I, I could I, see fascism yeah. growing in the rotary clubs or why not, right? <laughs> the country. Sure. Why not? That seems yeah, very... I'm not, you know, I'm not complimenting the I'm not complimenting the Santa Cruz, the pro Santa Cruz committee more than I might be putting down the Rotary Club. But, yeah, it's sort of just a just a middle class sort of um, organization that contains, you know, some phalangism from the, you know, sort of Catholic nationalism. Um, it contains some it contains also some regionalism. I mean, there are some sort of separatist uh, tendencies within the Santa Cruz, uh, the pro Santa Cruz uh, Civic Committee. It's basically Civicos, uh, and it's uh, it, it, you know, other provinces have formed these civic groups that are sort of the 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 wise men, most, mostly men of the of the region. The Potosi region has a civic group now, and they just advance the, the interest of their region, right? Sort of, uh, yeah. And so uh, Fernando Camacho, and, and, and by the way, the Civico movement has been involved in many different coups and revolutions over the years in Bolivia. Um, you know, sort of uh, Santa Cruz has a long history of sort of intrigue and agitation against what frequently is seen as sort of um, Andean hegemony. That's the language that some of the Santa Cruz people use. They're lowlanders. Um, they're not necessarily, I mean, people talk about them as whiter. I'm not sure if white and dark is the right way to think about Bolivia, but they're not, you know, they're sort of, um, the Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz is, um, is uh, different <laughs> indigenous groups are in the Santa Cruz region, the Chiquitanos, the Guarani, um, not the, uh, uh, the Aymara and Quechua, not to get too deep into the sort of ethnography of Bolivia, but um, the, the Santa Cruz people are more Catholic. They are skeptical of Andeanism and sort of the Pachamama mirth, uh, Mother Earth, and they consider it to be paganism, and they consider Highlanders to be dirty, and they're sort of not all of them, of course, but uh, not all of the Santa Cruz people think that all of the upper, uh, Highlanders are dirty. But um, that's sort of the, the racism that you commonly hear of when you 
hear about the Santa Cruz um, region. And so when Fernando Camacho sort of rose up, it was like, not again, right? The Santa Cruz people are once again rising up. They don't have a lot of electoral numbers. I mean, these days there's as many um, mass supporters you know, there's probably 30% of Santa Cruz are mass supporters now. Uh, many are migrants from the highlands, but also just working class sort of Santa Cruz people don't necessarily support the um, Santa Cruz Regional Committee of Civic Civicos. Um, and so uh, Fernando Camacho kind of came out of nowhere, and, and it looked a lot like, for example, the 2008 attempted coup in Bolivia, which was led by lowlanders, uh, very racist language, very, I mean, you know, when I was living in Bolivia in 2008, and um, to some extent, the 2008 uprising looked a lot like the 1960s, like University of Mississippi white riots, you know, where the sort of these lowlanders were just rampaging against the Indian that you know, was now in control of Bolivia. He had been elected in 2005 and inaugurated in 2006. So um, it looked like another 2008. There was no reason for you know, many of us to assume that Evo Morales' supporters would not rally to his side again and defend his government that meant you know the working the workers the uh, workers confederation was a part of his coalition and also the peasant federa confederation was part of his coalition so it just seemed you know obvious that this would just be another um sort of publicity stunt fernando camacho uh, really overtook mesa at this point uh, mesa mesa did not want um, there to be a break in the constitution basically he did not want a coup uh, mesa um, I mean, I, I, that's my analysis of it. I mean, the, the, the official mass party line is sort of Mesa, Camacho, Añez, Golpistas, right? They're all coupongers, right? Um, but I think that, you know, Mesa and sort of many of the liberals who were observing this, when I, call, when I talk about liberals, I'm basically saying like anti-mass liberals, right? Anti-left liberals. They, what they wanted to see was like Evo Morales maybe resign, but there to be a very sort of clear constitutional succession, new elections, um, you know, they did not want there to be a break in constitutionality. But Fernando Camacho sort of openly advocated for a coup, right? He, he, he called on the asses to oust Evan Morales. He called on the police. Um, it's unclear to me, and I think a lot of people, how much Fernando Camacho had organized his push, his push uh, before he arrived in La Paz. But um, it was a very dramatic thing, I have to say. It really took the country by storm. He was He became sort of the... Um, um, the center of attention from, I guess, November 8th to November 10th. Um, in Santa Cruz, the police began to mutiny along with the Civicos. So um, the police in Santa Cruz began to march through the street sort of with what had initiated, initially been anti-fraud protests, supposedly you know, anti-fraud protests, but increasingly looked like paramilitary slash police push against the uh, government. But again, Santa Cruz is a place where you oftentimes have these types of right-wing marches and sometimes violence and, and riots against uh, a left-wing government. So it didn't seem to be that strange. But then Fernando Camacho announced that he wanted to deliver a resignation letter to Evo Morales, to the president of, the United, uh, of Bolivia. <laughs> and he wanted to deliver this in person. And, you know, as a Bolivian, he has the right to travel within national territory, he said. So he wanted to fly to La Paz and deliver the letter. And he flew once, and all of the peasants, sort of a lot of the peasant supporters, the the Alalto, the, the the working class neighborhood, they they surrounded the airport, and like wouldn't let him out or whatever. So I think he you know he went back inside, and then um, eventually, first of all, the, the <laughs> Evo Morales government is like, why can't he just fax the letter? Like what, you know, <laughs> they're asking why he won't just fax the letter. He's like, no, I must deliver it in person. 
And uh, it really looked almost farcical. I can't believe this is what brought down the mighty mass party. But like eventually the mass government agreed to give him an escort, um, you know, basically to get get out of the airport to protect him from vigilante pro-government, you know, possible vigilante. So the mass government um, gave him a police escort to go to the presidential palace and deliver a letter to the sort of public window where anyone can go deliver a letter to the ministry of the presidency. And um, yeah, and then, but they said once, like if you go anywhere else, you're on your own. Like we're not gonna give him protection. And it's so out, I think, from the presidential palace supposedly to go back to the airport, he took a detour and went off and met with all these other groups. So uh, at that point, you know, the police actually become co-conspirators with Camacho, different groups. The SWAT teams are the first to mutiny. They uh, he, he sort of openly offers bribes. Later, he admits that he got $50,000 for each sort of officer who would go against the government. He also met with, and I don't know, maybe exchanged money with the head of the peasant confederation um who now has since been disowned by the peasant federation the, the peasant worker federation but he met with the peasant worker federation so it had, he had a picture of himself with you know the masses key constituency the head of the peasant confederation it was a very odd moment um you know the police were fully in the streets at this point the SWAT teams are the ones supposed to protect the presidential palace so when they announced not only that they weren't going to protect the presidential palace but they actually called for Eva Morales's resignation. They announced mutiny and called for his resignation. They put on hoods and things. So it wasn't sure, wasn't clear which commanders were with you know were were imprisoned or which commanders were sort of part of the conspiracy. At that point, Eva Morales flew to I think first he went to the uh, the air base in El Alto in the, in the suburbs and then eventually flew to Cochabamba where his Cocalero sort of coca growers union would uh, protect him basically. Um, but yeah, then you have Luis Fernando Camacho parading through the streets with a, he, he wore a uh, bulletproof vest <laughs> during, during this whole drama and he paraded <laughs> through the streets with police, uh, you know, uh, uh, mutinied police and, um, uh, you know, all through the night of the ninth. And it's a very, it was a very tense moment at that point because you basically have no one to protect the, the government and you have Luis Fernando Camacho and um, several, a lot of like, paramilitaries. He had, he had a very impressive security sort of detail, even though he wasn't himself carrying weapons. He had a militia style uh, uh, detail. And then of course the police had jo joined the, uh, the coup. The next day was when, um, was when everyone was waiting to find out what the military would do. The, the trade union federation the next morning on Sunday morning uh, said, you know, we need you to, um, Think, well, the Trade Union Federation had a very strange statement. It was like, we are behind you. Whatever you decide to do, we're, if resigning is going to bring peace to the country, let's do it. We're, we're behind that, too. It was a very strange statement. But, of course, the opposition media went all over it. You know, Trade Union Confederation calls for the resignation of Morales, joins the police and joins, you know, the, 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 the revolution, basically. Um, and then the OAS also released its statement. It's sort of initial. Its first statement was the day after was the day after the election uh, on October 21st. But on the morning of November 10th, the OAS released a very sort of rushed and hurried uh, judgment that basically, yeah, did not exculpate. I mean, I think a lot of us were asking, like, yeah, you know what? We looked at the data, and actually, it's pretty easy to explain or at least say we don't know. We don't know. It may be that uh, there was fraud. It may be there wasn't. We should, you know, there should be no coup, you know. But the OAS absolutely threw fuel on the fire on the 10th. 
And uh, the Trade Union Confederation made its request that there be new elections, um, at least. And Evo Morales accepted that, called for new elections. And then shortly after that, the police commander, which he, who he had appointed, uh, and the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, who he had appointed as well, both called on him basically to resign, suggested that he resign. And that was, that was the end of Evo Morales. Um, it was only two days later that uh, Agnes appears, but I've already gone on for too long with the first two. Do you want me to continue with these next two? <laughs> well, let's 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 talk about Agnes. I mean, you know, we want to, uh, I mean, want to get into I, 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 I want to get a question. Yeah. Right. I, well, I want to get into sort of what her government has been doing here. So uh, we could we could sort of fold her into the next question, which is, um, you know, what happened sure. here is, it seems to me, you know, unquestionably. Uh, a coup. You have a junta now taking power, uh, right-wing junta, um, ousting Morales. The best you could could do in a situation like this, the the most legitimate thing that that you could do in this situation is say, okay, we've you know uh, gone through this turmoil, we've ousted the president, we've taken power, we're going to now uh, you know make it our sole focus to organize a new election. And get a, a legitimate-ish, at least a, a government that has the uh, imprimatur of democratic legitimacy back in power. Uh, instead of doing that, uh, Agnes has taken over, and she's her government. She and and Murillo, the the interior minister, and you know her, the rest of her government uh, have gone on this sort of uh, you know long kind of spate. Uh, of making major policy changes, particularly uh, the stuff that I see, you know, is in foreign policy. They've cut ties with uh, Venezuela. They've expelled uh, Cuban doctors from the country and uh, kind of worsened Bolivia's ties with Cuba. Uh, they've cracked down, you know, repeatedly on on dissent. Uh, and so, I mean, let's talk about what's been going on. Uh, under Añez, and and what, uh, in your opinion, is the agenda here? Because it's clearly not uh, to organize an election. Again, you know, there there is an election now scheduled, uh, and we can talk about that. Um, but it, it clearly the goal was not to just shepherd the country into a new election. Uh, it's been to reverse uh, a lot of the things that Morales did, and is it? Uh, you know, would you, in your opinion, has it been more kind of to undermine the the socialist economic policies of the Morales government? Has it been driven by a sort of, uh, you know, religious and maybe anti-indigenous sentiment? Is there an urban-rural thing happening here? Uh, and the other question, uh, I think, you know, that, that was very salient right around the time of the coup uh, that sort of got poo-pooed in the media uh, is the question of Bolivia's lithium stockpiles or lithium resources, I shouldn't say stockpiles. It's, a lot of it's still in the ground. Um, but, you know, there was sort of this immediate thought that maybe, you know, maybe there's something to to the, the notion that uh, you've got a lot of private companies that want to get their hands on Bolivia's lithium. And that was downplayed. There were a lot of articles about, oh, no, there's a lithium glut and it's no big deal. Nobody would have done this just for lithium. But now, uh, you know, there was just an interview uh, that I, I saw with, um, uh, what was his name? Uh, the the uh, A union leader named Ramiro Huaita, uh, who talked about, you know, the fact that 
this is happening. Like they, there is the, the the government is you know taking steps uh, to privatize Bolivia's lithium, and and you know that's another potential aspect of this. So I guess this is a very broad question, but I, I'm I'm looking for your sort of general impressions of Anya's government and what its agenda is and what it's been doing. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, you did mention that you have six months to catch up on, so a broad, a broad <laughs> question is, uh, is well-received. That's fine. Um, you know, it's, it's – um, you mentioned – so just starting back with, like, you know, the, 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 the junta uh, sort of moment, it's, it's a really fascinating um, sort of transition. Uh, so before – just before I get to Agnes's government, you know, it's, it's important to note that, you know, as I mentioned before, by, at this point, you know, uh, by, by November 10th, Really, a lot of the liberals are are um, are really being pushed aside by the by the far right, and um, while a few, you know, m many, I should say, probably anti-mass liberals, um, I think, probably rejoiced at the fall of Evo Morales and assumed that they could, you know, have some uh, space to uh, participate in the coming government, were immediately disenchanted. And at this point, many of the masses, liberal, and some of its like left. Um, critics are really, really sort of united against the Agnes government, um, and and you'll you know you 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 begin to see why as as we discuss some of some of her government's policies. But the you know the the junta moment was very very interesting. So from November 10th to November 12th, you did essentially have a, a de facto junta ruling the country, although the commander in chief of the armed forces never asserted sort of his sort of de facto presidency. Um, you really had a two-day period without without any government, and um, the opposition was scrambling to figure out how they might assert some form of um, constitutionality. And uh, there was a meeting at Catholic University, the sort of evening of uh, of the tenth or eleventh. I'm not sure. I have to check my records, but um, and it was it was five sort of uh, again wise men. It was the it was the further right wing ex presidents. So you know Tuto Quiroga and and others were there. Sort of the, it was more of a was Catholic. The Catholic bishops were there, and they determined that the the only thread of constitutionality they had left was uh, the possibility that Janine Agnes, a very well a sort of very very unknown uh, right wing politician from uh, Beni from the lowlands, uh, was in a sense the opposition leader of the Senate, which. When all of the mass um, officials resigned, uh, you know they, they were under quite a lot of bodily and familial danger, um, and th that meant the president, the vice president, and the head of the Senate and the head of the House of, of, de of Deputies. It was basically this opposition figure whose party had won only four percent uh, in the October twentieth election, who asserted that she was the head, as you mentioned before, the head of the Senate, and therefore. Um, you know, by 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 self-proclaiming herself the head of the Senate uh, in front of an empty chamber because the police were actually part of the coup and they, were, they weren't letting the mass party representatives actually get to the Senate, even if they had the courage to do so, because they were also being threatened by paramilitaries on the side of the military coup and the police coup. So um, Agnes sort of declares herself president. At this point, it becomes really, I think, very worrisome for many um well, it's obviously worrisome for many on the left because their lives are in danger and they're, very, they're, they're, they're scared because this is a coup and now they're being persecuted. Many of the mass officials are in hiding at this point. Um, 
there are many still at the um, Mexican embassy who are being you know, threatened with their lives. And uh, as you mentioned, the Agnes government is threatening to hunt them down like animals and um, really uh, very scary. They have not respected the right of safe, con safe, safe conduct, safe passage, uh, and the right of asylum and exile. So um, unlike the military of the 60s and 70s, which of course there were many, many atrocities, but generally once the situation stabilized, the right of exile was respected, and this Agnes government has not respected the right of exile. I believe there's about 20 former um, ministers of the government and vice ministers who are trapped in the Mexican embassy now for six months in La Paz, with surrounded by sort of um, right-wing uh, pro-government paramilitary people who aren't even respecting the quarantine, as far as I can tell. Um, so anyway, Agnes declares herself head of the Senate and therefore head of the, the country as basically the presidential succession. This provides some threat of constitutionality, and the Supreme Court does ratify this. But you have a very strange situation where the mass party continues to con control the Congress by like actually a two-thirds majority. Um, and you know at this point, the mass party has to decide what to do. And um, they agreed to uh, to sort of tolerate the Añez administration if the Añez administration tolerated the parliament. And um, so the parliament worked with the Añez administration to set a date of elections early May. This happened very early on in sort of December. This is a very tense time, but uh, for the sake of the country, to pacify the country, the mass party agreed to submit to elections even under an Añez administration. And a date of early May was was set. Um, at first, they talked about early March because the Constitution requires that uh, elections are called within 90 days, actually. But due to just the logistical difficulties of holding an election, the uh, Congress and the administration decided to um, to put the date of elections in early May. Immediately, the Añez administration goes about completely reorienting Bolivia's foreign affairs. You mentioned. Uh, they broke ties with Venezuela. They expelled Cuban doctors. They broke ties with Cuba. They reestablished diplomatic relations at the ambassador level with the United States, which had been severed in 2008 during the attempted right-wing coup then, uh, which the U.S. ambassador had uh, contacts within the coup organizers. Uh, regardless, you know, not sure how much he knew about it. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but he was expelled in 2008. So they reestablished relations with the United States. They invited USAID back in, USAID back in to Bolivia, um, which had been expelled in 2013 for meddling in the country. And actually, they, they not only that, but they accepted USAID's support in organizing the election. So that was, uh, for me, a big, um, that was a, that was a bit, a bit jarring that um, USAID, who does a lot of political work in Bolivia, uh, you know, did a lot of political work in Bolivia later on, that was handed off to the NED and the IRI. Um, you know, supporting opposition parties and news stations and radio stations, things like that. The idea that USAID would be a, a, a trustworthy organizer of the Bolivian elections or technical support for the Bolivian elections was very, you know, sort of jarring to me. Um, so they they reoriented the um, the entire Bolivian apparatus. And well before the, the coronavirus pandemic, uh, they were cracking down on, on free speech. I mean, um, it really all began with the dual massacres of Sincata and Sacaba, where, you know, sort of after Añez declared herself president, the, the coca growers uh, from the lowlands and also the which were working class and peasant worker coalition from the El Alto suburbs were all marching toward La Paz. They were going to surround the presidential palace and demand that the self-appointed president resign. And um, the police, especially the police, the military didn't seem to want to confront people at first, but... Um, 
uh, they actually required that Agnes sign a, 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 a decree of immunity so that if they did um, do anything, that they would not be put on trial later, that she would, essentially. Uh, she did give them that immunity, and um, they proceeded, along with police, to uh, confront p protesters who were trying to basically uh, overthrow the coup government, sort of trying to provoke a counter coup or a restoration of the uh, of the mass government, bringing back Evo Morales, basically. Or maybe, call, you know, some of them were calling for the military just to take over instead of this Agnes sort of um, this 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 charade of of Agnes, whose party got four percent, taking over and 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 reorienting the whole country. Just let the military take over as a caretaker before elections. Um, but that did not happen, and uh, Agnes obviously survived thanks to these really brutal massacres. Uh, dozens of people were killed in both the marching up from the lowlands and also marching down from the highlands into sort of. They all had the goal of getting to La Paz. After the massacres of Sacaba and Sincata. Um, it was really a chilling moment, actually. I mean, a lot of people in Bolivia just they just went home and went into hiding. It was it was terrifying, and um, and at first they began to persecute digital what they called digital warriors or digital guerrillas, um, who you know were organizing sort of anti Agnes um, things on the internet, and uh, they were also going through all the files of the former Eva Morales ministries and vice ministries to try to find any evidence of you know, whatever corruption they could find. And, um, you know, they took the press through Ever Morales's house to show them, you know, that, you know, this, this supposedly he lives like an Arab king or something, an Arab sheik, which is like a simple room that he lived in a simple dorm room but that kind of shows you the sort of deep race, racial anxieties that the current government in Bolivia has, you know, even, you know, an Indian should not be living like this. It was just Eva Morales took over the government according to them, you know, just so he could, you know, just so he could, have a have a bed basically you know a real bed um so it's a, it's a really sad moment i think the, the current government again it doesn't really have any support amongst the liberals it doesn't have obviously it has it's very much opposed um from the left um it's it's it contains really the most sort of reactionary elements of, of bolivian society i mean we're, we're talking i mean you know the, the the right has intellectuals i think you know but these are not them these are just absolute reactionaries you know they misspell everything that they send out presidential decrees with misspellings throughout them i mean it's a really sad thing for a country like bolivia that's been ruled by a party the mass party which has been called the you know the party of indians and peasants but really uh, you know contains some of the some of the best and and, and brightest intellectuals of, of of bolivia i mean I, I don't want to over romanticize the mass there were obviously a lot of really smart people opposed to the mass but those really smart mass opposition figures are not part of this government and mario is a good example of sort of um, what the Agnes government has to offer. His nickname is actually uh, Balls. I mean, basically Bolas, Balls Murillo. He's closely sort of associated with the um, right-wing paramilitaries of the Cochabamba area that um, continue to terrorize indigenous and other sort of left protesters. You mentioned about sort of racial uh, economic. It's all mixed together. I mean, in Bolivia, communist and indigenous right now anyway like you know communist and ma masista basically is the word used to refer to um dirty indians who are also like you know um who have also fallen prey to the communist um trick or whatever and so it's a very fascistic um rhetoric it's racialized um, you know, anyone who supports the mass party, uh, you know, even a gringo like me could be seen as, 
yet another masista, which is a dirty Indian, basically. I mean, it's really deep. deep. I'm obviously, I don't think that I would be repressed the same way that a, someone who is actually an Amara or a Quechua Indian, or, but this sort of very much um, it, it, the, the, the right wing fascist sort of um, rhetoric in Bolivia blends together um, a hatred for the rural, um, a hatred for the sort of Indian, and also for the left. It's all sort of mixed in together, and, and Maria really represents that. So um, they've been, you know, they put people in jail for, you know, digital warfare, um, and they just passed a decree a couple of days ago actually outlawing misinformation across the board, not just on social media, but also the press and, um, uh, you know, radio. It, it's, 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 uh, it seems like the Agnes government is approaching its end, but I don't think it will go quietly. Um, there have been uh, sort of periodic uh, petard shootings, you know, uh, uh, firework shooting sessions at night against the Agnes government. There's been a, a lot of sort of it seems to be that something's coming to a head. Uh, just the other day, uh, the Bolivian parliament in, May, you know, in, in sort of tried to finally bring things to a head by passing a law saying, you know what, you postponed elections uh, on saying that it's the coronavirus, you can't hold elections. The, the election date has already passed uh, about, about, uh, about 10 days ago. Um, and you have to have elections within, um, within three months, so by, by early August. And um, yeah, and so the Bolivian, uh, the Agnes administration uh, rejects this, calls it unconstitutional, and has been threatening to shut down the 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 people's the uh, the assembly, the 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 parliament. Uh, at that point, it would the the coup would finally be culminated. Uh, it already is a de facto government, in my view. I don't think that you know anyone can uh, claim that the Agnes government has any claim to democratic um, legitimacy, but this tense standoff between the mass parliament and the self-declared sort of self-proclaimed um, self-appointed Agnes government is maybe coming to a head. Um, she can probably survive if she calls elections, but the mass party is well ahead in all the polls. Uh, even without Eva Morales, the mass party still is pulling in in the 30s and the next party isn't anywhere above 15 percent as far as I can tell. Um, you asked about lithium as well. Um, that interview that you saw, I think that was a that was a really well done interview by uh, the Coca Growers Union's uh, English language. Um, they just launched an English language uh, uh, news service, which I think is is great because there's a lot of news that doesn't get translated in English. I try to do some of it myself just to you know share with you know other Latin America watchers. But that interview is really interesting because it really it breaks down what. Uh, lithium meant and meant for the coup, and what lithium means for Bolivia today. You know, because I think that uh, without really taking it seriously, uh, many just reject the idea that lithium had anything to do with the coup because they assume that those asserting that it did have something to do with the coup, uh, um, you know, they, they assume that what what we are saying is that you know Elon Musk sat down with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and they organized a CIA coup in Bolivia so that the U.S. Um, co corporations could get control of the lithium. And that is not how things generally work. Um, you know, you know so, 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 so by rejecting that sort of crazy conspiratorial narrative, those who deny that lithium had anything to do with it are ignoring the facts that, as, as, the, as the head of the Peasant Union in Uyuni demonstrated or sort of uh, described in his interview, lithium had everything to do with Potosi's um, entrance into the coup conspiracy, right? So um, when Luis Fernando's, Fernando Camacho came to La Paz, he didn't just meet with the La Paz uh, Peasant Workers Federation leader. 
and with the head of the SWAT teams uh, in La Paz, in the capital city of La Paz. He also joined there with the head of the uh, Potosi uh, civic group, which is a highland uh, province, typically, you know, traditionally allied with Evo Morales and the left. But they had broken with Evo Morales for several reasons. They didn't feel like they were getting enough of the royalties of, of their natural resources, which is traditionally mining. But they also wanted a different uh, lithium deal. And Evo Morales' lithium deal had sort of provoked the ire of many in Potosi's business community. And so they also joined in with the coup. And it had everything to do with lithium. And, and actually, the day, I think it was the day or two before the coup, in a, in a bid to try to break Potosi, the, the sort of highlanders uh, of Potosi, away from uh, the racist sort of lowland uh, movement uh, led by Luis Fernando, Fernando Camacho, who of course claims he's not, you know, is not racially motivated, but um, to try to break the Potosinos away from the Santa Cruz movement, Evo Morales actually canceled his lithium um, uh, industrialization deal with the idea that they, you know, he would do something that would be more to the liking of Santa Cruz, uh, of Potosí's business community. Um, that was too little, too late for them. They continued with the coup, uh, sort of to support the coup. And today, under the Añez government, the business community of Potosí and many sort of Bolivian uh, capital-friendly ideologues, if you want to put it that way, are rushing to privatize and exploit lithium, uh, you know, while they have the reins of power, there's lots of kickbacks that can be achieved. But it's also an ideological commitment to free markets and free trade that, you know, d disparage Bolivia's possible role in industrialization. Right? I mean, that's one thing the mass party, um, in its 15 years in power, continually pushed the idea that Bolivia might be a low-income country, but it doesn't have to be an underdeveloped country, and it doesn't have to have a colonized sort of mentality. It can deal sort of toe-to-toe -to -toe on the international scene. Um, but now we have the Añez government, it's sort of you're back to these sort of Bolivian ruling classes that actually disparage their own country and talk about how, well, we can't do this, we can't do that because we're a poor country, and we just have to basically tolerate whatever the United States and the international financial institutions tell us we have to do, and that is to privatize and exploit the lithium. And that's exactly what they're doing. So the idea that lithium had nothing to do with the coup or it has nothing to do with Bolivian politics today is just as ridiculous as the, you know, sort of um, the, the, the false straw man argument that, you know, to say that lithium did uh, have something to do with the coup, that somehow it was Elon Musk's coup or something like that. I, I wonder, um, I mean, you've, you've I mean, sort of... Sort of brought us into you mentioned the the dispute over the election um you know the the fact that the Anya's government is you know has sort of thrown the mask off basically and is uh, after having agreed to hold an election and then you know postponing it ostensibly because of the coronavirus uh you know is just now like flat out you know threatening not to hold an election altogether um which is it seems like a real mask off moment uh, um, there was an interview, uh, in, uh, People's Dispatch, uh, last month with Luis Arce, who's sort of, uh, Morales's, uh, endor the Morales-endorsed, uh, candidate for mass in the next presidential election, whenever that happens, uh, that was reprinted in Jacobin just a, a couple of days ago, I think. Uh, um, you know, he talked about the government's 
uh, the the Agnes government's sort of response to uh, the coronavirus. He talked a lot about these issues in terms of natural resources and what is the appropriate uh, way to use these things. Um, I mean, his sense the, the sense I got from from reading this interview was, um, you know, his feeling is that that Agnes's government hasn't done anything, any of the sort of traditional things that you would expect a government to do, especially in the face of a crisis like this. I think his quote was, uh, you know, they did nothing about uh, the coronavirus and, and they've sort of, uh, they've been on this, you know, tangent to kind of, uh, you know, in, impose their own, uh, you know, impose sort of a, a neoliberal kind of right wing economic policy and, and, you know, make these other changes to kind of erase the Morales government or erase some of its achievements. Um, in your opinion, uh, and, and we can sort of, uh, I guess, wrap up on this, um, if, and I guess when, there's, there's gotta, you would think there's got to be one at some point, but if and when uh, there is an election, um, and it, you already, as you already noted, you know, Mass has a, has a huge lead in polling over the next, you know, next largest party um there is a divide we're back to a situation where it's a divided opposition you know you noted earlier that uh one of the things mesa had going for him going into last year's election was that he had sort of united a lot of the major uh opposition movements that's not the case anymore you know mesa is one of several uh, including Agnes, including camacho one of several opposition figures who are going to run um so mas would seem to be in the driver's seat if there is a fair election and i guess my question is uh in your opinion if there if an election is held uh what is the expectation that it's actually going to be uh, a fair legitimate election versus you know uh we've already seen that this is a government that's uh, not afraid to uh, use the coronavirus crisis to to tamp down a dissent or just to you know sort of violently suppress dissent anyway uh how big a uh, reach is it to suggest that they might interfere with uh, ironically interfere with the election since that's how this all started with these sort of uh charges that morales had done so what's the what are the chances that uh Agnes's government would do that yeah it's it's a really good question i i um I remember when the when the coup first happened, it was it it reminded me a lot of a coup. I'd written a book about the 1964 coup, which also happened in early November, and also happened against a very popular civilian uh, re-election, a th sort of third re-election of a very popular civilian uh, government that had peasant backing. And so it was a very much sort of urban coup. It had Santa Cruz participation. There were a lot of sim similarities in 1964. And the military did uh, overtly just take over in that particular case, although the vice president could have done it himself. Um, uh, you can read the book to find out. But they didn't actually hold elections for about 18 months. Um, the main reason at that time was that the strongest political force in the country remained the mine workers uh, who were on the left. And they controlled huge numbers of votes throughout the uh, rural areas and uh, the factory districts as well. Uh, essentially, the, the idea was they didn't want to hold elections while the mine workers continued in their, what they saw as revolutionary posture. Um, they probably could have won an election narrowly, but they wanted to crush the mine workers union. That was the real point of the 1964 coup. And I think one of the main points of the 2019 coup in Bolivia was the crushing of the coca growers union. That's, I think, what the Yanez government really wants to do. Uh, the coca growers union uh, re, uh, sort of met, uh, 
um, enco um, encompasses all of the anxieties of Bolivia's middle class, uh, sort of racially um, troubled middle class. Uh, the, 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 the lowland coca growers are indigenous peasants. They're leftists. Uh, you know, the symbolism of the coca growers is, you know, Guevaras, basically, the sort of followers of the revolutionary ideologies in Cuba. And uh, crushing the coca growers union seems to be more important, much more important to the NES administration than holding elections. And in fact, the coca growers regions were already becoming a very, very much a hot spot in the lead up to the elections. The uh, Murillo, the, 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 the right wing um, Extreme, the extreme right-wing government minister who's in charge of security, basically, for the country, had already accused the Coca Growers Union, basically, of like, you know, not allowing the police to operate freely. They had expelled the police after the coup for being collaborators and basically uh, coup, you know, leaders, and they had not allowed the police to return. Um, the military is there, but they they have a basically a sort of relationship with the unions that Mario sees as very troubling, and he's you know made these. These signs that they were going to, you know, basically intervene in the Chapare, which is the lowland coca growers area. Um, so I don't think elections were going to happen anyway. I think that the, the government was establishing all sorts of pretexts to either not have the election or exclude large portions of the rural areas, uh, sort of as a pre-1952, uh, you know, return to urban rule in Bolivia, white urban rule, or sort of uh, white mestizo urban rule. So the coronavirus was like a manna from heaven for them because it gave them uh, an excuse to basically cancel elections indefinitely. At this point, the coronavirus itself has become a site of contention between the Añez government and the coca growers, uh, where the coca growers, for example, have been trying to uh, feed uh, you know, uh, trying to feed people to uh, break the quarantine to sort of uh, the coca growers are trying to sort of establish goodwill throughout the country. And the Añez administration is not allowing anyone really to leave. It's one of the most brutal quarantines in the region. Um, you can only leave in Bolivia. You can only leave once every like three days when your number pops up, like the last number on your ID. When when that number pops up, you can leave the house only in the morning to go to the supermarket and back. I mean, it's a brutal uh, quarantine, and people are only now starting to challenge that. Uh, you know, previously they were they were, they were they were just being arrested. Any organizers of any type of blockade or protest was were being organized, but now things are really coming to a head a little bit, and the demand here really is elections. And so the mass party tr is trying to keep all of its constituent parts together. That includes its core base in the coca growing regions, uh, along with the uh, El Alto working class neighborhoods of La Paz, which are, you know, about a million and a half people. Uh, in addition, the sort of progressive intellectuals, some in the cities, some working class people in the cities, the uh, working class districts of all the towns uh, throughout the country, the peasantry throughout the country as well. And and to keep that coalition together, they're you know not really, you know, they did not the, the mass party did not choose a coca grower uh, on its ticket. It, it chose uh, to go with an uh, urban intellectual, Luis Arce, as you mentioned, and uh, and a leader, uh, sort of uh, an, uh, someone who's seen as a, a, a leading figure in the Aymara uh, indigenous community of the suburbs of, of, of La Paz and the Altiplano outside of La Paz, uh, David Choquehuanca, who's actually from the Altiplano near the Lake Titicaca region. So the mass party is trying to keep its coalition together. So far, it seems to have done it. It seems like a good ticket for doing that and maintaining the support of, of the middle classes in the cities who uh, bec would become even more nervous if it were purely a peasant worker ticket. Um, and uh, I think they would win if there were uh, 
sort of free elections. I don't think that, you know, I don't think you'll see sort of a outright, you know, you might see some ballot stealing, but I think what it's more likely you'll see um, a heavier hand from Brazil or the United States to try to broker an agreement between the many political forces, maybe to try to get Camacho or Agnes to drop out, uh, to try to see if they can consolidate behind one candidacy. Uh, but you're right that there's there many, many opposition candidacies. Um, and if, you know, if they can't keep the mass party uh, under 30 percent, it'd be very hard uh, to, uh, you know, to, um, to see them uniting in, 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 in one group. So I think that, uh, yes, the mass party could win an election in Bolivia. No, I don't think the Añez government, uh, is interested in holding elections. And I suspect that, uh, the, the Añez government will probably, you know, it's, it's hard to predict, but I, I just don't see them holding elections that are regarded as, as fair and open. Um, it's more likely that we'll see a constitutional crisis coming uh, between the Congress and the Agnes government. I don't know what that would look like, whether it would be a straight up military solution, military coup, uh, or whether Agnes would resign and someone else would step up, another civilian would step up. Um, uh, but it, 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 it's very much all wide open uh, in terms of what could happen in Bolivia right now. It's quite exciting for supporters of mass and liberal opponents of Agnes uh, who uh, just want to see elections happen. And that's the only thing that she was supposed to do. So uh, hopefully she can get around to doing that at some point. <laughs> I get my, so my last question, I guess this, I guess is, this is a is little on the more conspiratorial side, but uh, as you have observed all of this happening, um, do you think... Um, going again, kind of taking us back to the beginning of this interview, going back to uh, the October 20th election. And I think, you, you know, you, you kind of suggested something like this earlier in the interview. Um, was something like this in the cards the whole time? Uh, and, and, you know, we can talk about uh, whether it was in the cards in terms of the Bolivian opposition, whether there was a U.S., kind of role that was played here or, you know, any kind of uh, knowledge, you know, in, in the U.S. beforehand. Um, but was the was the plan always for uh, Mesa to object to something uh, and try to create this kind of situation? I mean, you can say, uh, you know, this seems like a, a reaction to some to a peculiar seeming thing that happened during the vote count so it must not have been planned in advance but on the other hand you, you could find in almost any election uh, if you look hard enough you can find something that looks funny uh, and make a big deal out of that was 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 there something like were they going to try to do this with with anything like were they going to try to seize on something out of that election to maybe not oust Morales maybe that was you know something that uh you know maybe that wasn't anticipated but at least to undermine uh his presidency and and you know with this being kind of everything that's happened since being kind of a a bonus do you have a a, a view on that or is am I too far off in the kind of speculating no, I mean, I I don't think that's much of a conspiracy. I mean, the, the, you know, the, 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 I could go further and speculating real, you know, deeper conspiracies. I mean, but the idea that that Carlos Mesa and others on the opposition would seize upon any uh, irregularity to basically denounce the entire election, that's not really that. I don't think that's a bridge too far at all. I mean, it, it, it almost stands to reason why they wouldn't uh, do that. I mean, we have to recognize, I mean, I, I think I'm, you know, 
people don't generally ask me, but I mean, I, I very much sympathize with the Morales government. I thought it was the best government in Bolivian history, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, the MNR governments in the early 50s were pretty impressive. But the mass government, I think, was the was the longest sustained period of of um, economic growth in Bolivia and poverty reduction. So I'm, I'm very much a supporter of of the mass ma, the mass party and the mass government. I thought they were the I thought he was the best president in Bolivian history. That said, I think we have to recognize that, you know, a fourth election is very much unprecedented uh, in Bolivian history anyway. Um, previous to Evo Morales, no Bolivian president had ever served more than seven years. Um, and that was a military dictator in the 1970s. Um, you know, it, it, there was a tradition against re-election of any sort, um, you know, and, and, and Evo Morales sort of brought in the sort of re-election, you know, the idea of re-election, but just once. And so, you know, this sort of re-election over and over again, I think it, 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 it created anxieties beyond um, anything that I think the mass government realized. I think that, you know, you had a, a lot of people that um, didn't care what happened to their pocketbooks, didn't care what happened to, you know, didn't care if they were opening up the door to the far right, knew that they were probably opening up the door to the far right. And I'm talking about liberals who, you know, aren't necessarily political activists, mainly in the cities, who just got tired and sort of, uh, the word they used oftentimes in Bolivia is disgaste, which is, you know, basically exhaustion from the political process represented by the mass. So, of course, uh, Carlos Mesa was going to seize on anything to try to weaken and, and convince this, you know, uh, Evo to not run again uh, or to resign. I mean, uh, the typical liberal argument in Bolivia was you, the mass can run fine, but just not Evo Morales because he's run too many times and we need to respect term limits. So the liberal argument for term limits, you know, it's this principled argument about the rules. Um, it didn't inspire, you know, a lot of people to stay out in the streets uh, in the second and third week. That's when the far right began to sort of take advantage of things. But I think it's absolutely, uh, it's it's not just a reasonable thing to speculate on. I mean, we have recordings of people talking about it. We have documents that have been leaked. I mean, pe you know, people in Bolivia, I'm talking about the opposition, had long been talking about how to discredit the election, how to delegitimize the election. In fact, one of the opposition recordings that we have, I, I translated a little bit of it on, on Twitter, um, but it was basically the opposition saying, well, let's see if we can get the U.S. Congress to denounce the elections. And they actually succeeded in getting Marco Rubio to introduce something back in April to basically say that the entire electoral process was uh, was, was, was illegitimate uh, because uh, there should not be a re-election. Uh, there was a referendum that Evan Morales had lost to allow for re-election. So it was a constant sort of overwhelming uh, attempt, I think, on the opposition's part to delegitimize the election before, during and after. Um, that's not really a conspiracy theory, if, if, if you ask me, Derek. I think that uh, the conspiracy theory, if there is, if there was a conspiracy, would be, you know, to what extent there were forces uh, around the electoral process who were intentionally sabotaging it or provoking doubt. And, you know, on the highest level, that would be the OAS. We actually know what they did to create, I mean, you know, in creating doubt and sowing doubt, whether or not they were justified in doing it. I guess there's still debate on that. I happen to think they were not justified in doing that. But were there also people on the ground on the OA and the OAS observation mission, the OAS, you know, OAS recommended auditors and IT people, you know, was there a sort of, a, you know, a, a hypercharged environment in which Every irregularity was seen as proof of possible fraud. And I will say, by the way, that the mass party also was on hair trigger alert during this entire process, suspicious that 
the opposition was trying to commit some sort of fraud because it was going to be so close on the whole first round. So, you know, they shut down uh, the, the, the government uh, sort of appointed electoral uh, tribunal, shut down the quick count. Um, but we don't know why they did that. I mean, we have some uh, minutes of some of the meetings because some of the auditors have released them. But some of the um, tribunal members are mass uh, mass uh, sympathizers and others are opposition figures. So, you know, it may be that some voted to stop the quick count because they thought the opposition was cheating and some voted to stop the quick count because they thought the mass party was cheating. What we do know is that there was uh, a lot of doubt sown and that was not helped by the OAS's actions, which were really unprecedented, although I think I've now heard that the OAS tried to play a similar role in Dominica a, week, a month or two later, where you know a, a legitimate election, immediately the OAS starts saying, well, we have reason to believe that this election, we can't certify this election or something like that. And that method, uh, really um, you know, calling into doubt the electoral process or the democratic process, uh, opens the door for um, what has happened in Bolivia. Dozens are dead now. The democracy is gone. You have a government that has no legitimacy, who's locking up people left and right for, you know, basically violations of free speech. And I think the OAS has a lot to answer for on that particular score. Well, that's so that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't bode well, I guess, for uh... Uh, for future elections in the Americas, but uh, we'll mm. leave things there. Um, this is certainly something uh, we could talk about in the future. I have already, I already mentioned in the intro, uh, you know, before we started the interview, your books. Uh, but to reiterate to people, uh, you've written, you've got two books out: uh, "From Development to Dictatorship: Bolivia and the Alliance for Progress in the Kennedy Area Era." Uh, and uh, just released a book that you co-edited, Latin America and the Global Cold War. But you mentioned to me, and I haven't said anything about this, you've got uh, a book that you're working on. Um, tell people a little bit about that and when they can expect to, to see it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I've been working on my second monograph, which is on the, uh, the relationship between Bolivia and the United States during the era that I refer to as the era of Che Guevara. So as many of your listeners probably know, Che Guevara died in Bolivia. He, he, he went to Bolivia uh, as a part of a Cuban-backed mission to overthrow the, uh, the um, well, the U.S.-backed government in Bolivia. It was actually the government that took over after that 64 coup that had the uh, that, that, that didn't call elections for, for 18 months. And when they did call elections, by the way, and this is part of the book, the CIA helped to um, ensure unity of the people they wanted to win. So you, I, th I think you see a lot of sort of that, you know, the sort of CIA rigged 1966 election provides one of the preludes to Che Guevara's um, uh, attempt to overthrow the government of Bolivia uh, with the help of local Bolivian Communist Party members and others. Uh, so the story really is how uh, Che's adventure went, which we know that it didn't go too well, he died there. But more importantly, what his death sparked. And Bolivia is actually a really good example of uh, Che being a bit ahead of his time in terms of Latin American revolutionary consciousness. And so in the five years after Che's death in Bolivia, Latin America, uh, especially even the, even the ruling classes, even you know Catholics and even um, military figures actually became quite revolutionary, uh, began to adopt anti-imperialist language during the sort of third world moment. And so the book actually takes as one of its questions, like, how was it that the generals who ordered the death, the execution 
of Che Guevara? How was it that they actually became later, some of the colonels and generals, later became revolutionary leaders in 69, 70, 71, throwing out the United States, nationalizing U.S. companies and oil companies, uh, and sort of using the discourses of Che Guevara uh, in it, in their, for their own purposes. So that's sort of the book. It's, it's the rise and fall of Che in Bolivia, but I, I sort of refer to it as the rise and fall and then rise again. <laughs> All right, so people should keep an eye out for that, uh, and when you know when it's uh, when it's being published, uh, you know, hope we can uh, have you back to talk about it. That would be that would be to. great. It sounds like Thank a very you. interesting uh, topic, and um, maybe a little less fraught in terms of uh, <laughs> current events. So I always like to do interviews that are. Uh, a little less intense about you know the, the terrible things that are happening right now. We can talk about terrible things that happened in the past. It's a little more comforting. And we have the documents for the for the past events, so it makes it a little <laughs> bit easier. We don't have to speculate on the CIA's yes involvement. Yes. We can just read about it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, all right. So on that note, uh, Thomas Field, again, thank you for being on the program and uh, you know helping to to take us through what's going on in Bolivia and, uh, you know, stay safe and uh, healthy and uh, take care. I hope to talk to you again soon. You too, Derek. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. So one last time, I would like to thank Thomas Seafield for coming on the program to talk to us about what's happening in Bolivia and what may be coming around the corner. Um, I will, again, have links to his books uh, in the show description as well as his Twitter feed if you would like to follow that uh, try to stay on top of things uh, as they unfold uh, and be on the lookout for that uh, that new book that he's working on on Che Guevara and the Che Guevara era in Bolivia. Uh, to all of you, as always, uh, thanks for listening. Please stay safe, stay healthy, uh, and uh, I will talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.